Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus. Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. The Telegraph. Telegraph. Podcasts. I'm David Knowles, and this is Ukraine, the latest. Today, we analyse Ukraine's ongoing counteroffensive as Kyiv soldiers take more ground across the front line. We discuss worrying updates from the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant, and I tour the Patron Pet Centre in Kyiv, where volunteers rescue and treat animals that survived the catastrophic floods in Kherson. Bravery takes you through the most unimaginable hardships to finally reward you with victory. We need a military strategy for Ukraine to gain a decisive advantage on the battlefield, to win the war. Nobody's going to break us. We're strong. We're Ukrainians. Every weekday afternoon, we sit down with leading journalists from the Telegraph's London newsroom and our teams reporting on the ground to bring you the latest news and analysis on the war in Ukraine. It's Friday, the 30th of June, one year and 126 days since the full-scale invasion began. And today I'm joined by our associate editor Dominic Nichols, assistant comment editor Francis Sternley, and foreign reporter Genevieve Hole Allen. I started by asking Dom for the latest updates from Ukraine. Well, hi, David. Hi, everybody. So let's start down in Berdyansk. This is the Russian-occupied city in southern Zaporizhia region. So we're on the coast of the Sea of Azov, about 50 k's west down the coast from Mariupol. Series of explosions this morning there. Ukraine's armed forces have said today that they hit a Russian headquarters and a fuel and lubricant warehouse. 11 explosions in total reported, followed by fires and secondary detonations near the local airport. That's coming from the Russian-backed Berdyansk City Military Administration. I mean, they're also saying it's storm shadow, it's this, it's that. I mean, I don't unless you actually see these things in flight, which is possible, it's very difficult to say with any real accuracy what they are. I mean, you can go a little bit on, well, the range suggests this and suggests that. But, I mean, there's a lot of munitions in Ukraine that we don't really know about. So I, I caution against saying everything's storm shadow when it's, when it's more than about 120 Ks. There are reports that the US is edging closer to agreeing to supply ATACMS, the Army Tactical Missile System, which is very long-range, very very precise munition. But that is, that's not confirmed, or the reports that they are edging closer are. But as to whether or not they're going to, not yet confirmed. Elsewhere on the counter-offensive, Deputy, Ukraine's Deputy Defence Minister Hannah Malia, she was speaking on, on Ukrainian TV last night. She said, 
if we talk about the entire front line, both east and south, so the way we've sort of split it up as well, east, the Donbass and Bakhmut, and south, kind of Zaporizhia, Velika Novosilka, that way heading south to the coast, those two sort of flanks. She said, if we talk about both east and south, we have seized the strategic initiative and are advancing in all directions. She said, troops are moving confidently on the flanks around Bakhmut, and the main fighting was going on on the outskirts of the city. Unsurprisingly, I mean, you don't want to get, as Russia showed, you don't want to get snarled up in urban fighting if you can at all help it. We think you, you bait the military judges' casualties on about a three-to-one ratio in, in normal, in inverted commas, fighting in the kind of countryside. That goes up to at least six or much, much, very easily, much higher than that in an urban environment. It's just such an unforgiving place to try and assault. There's so many places you can get hit by. So, yeah, they are staying out of the city of Bakhmut, what's left of it, and pushing around the flanks. So um, Ms Malia said that Kiev's forces have advanced 1,200 metres in the direction of Klishkivka. This is about 5 k's southwest of Bakhmut and uh, another 1,500 metres in the direction of which is about 15 k's south. So these, you know, these are not big, not big advances, but they are steady. Remember when we were saying that Ukraine advances were a few hundred metres each day? They'd all add up. The cost, of course, is largely unknown. However, Ukraine has seen the cost in, uh, in Russian lives and will be doing everything they can to preserve their combat power. So I think if they're making those advances, I can't even pretend to put an estimate on the casualty figures. They are not going to be light, but I don't think Ukraine would accept the figures that Russia had accepted before. But even so, it is a tough fight there and very slow, small gains. But I think that is, I think that is appropriate given the defences they're going up against. I think any suggestion that they should be making faster advances or that we're all getting a bit bored, that, oh, why aren't they through the second line of defence? That's just pie in the sky, I think. This is real war. This is what it looks like. And we need to bed in for the long haul here and manage those expectations. This is not going to be a quick fight. Speaking about the other fronts, Deputy Defence Minister Maliar said, in the south, we are moving with varying success. Sometimes there are days when it's more than a kilometre, sometimes less than a kilometre. The ISW, Institute for the uh, Study of War, US-based think tank, also reporting that Ukraine's commander-in-chief, so the head of the whole armed forces, General Zeluzny, he said that Ukraine's forces have the strategic initiative. He's reported to have said that in a phone conversation yesterday with Chairman of the US Joint Chiefs of Staff, General Mark Milley. I presume that's open source. Not sure where that was sourced from, but I guess the ISW haven't bugged his phone. But strategic initiative can mean many different things. That takes into account... What's happening on the ground takes into account the politics, takes into account the information flank as well. But, you know, that is a that's a positive comment. I think we should draw from that. Next story. So Kirill Badanov, who's the head of Ukraine's defense intelligence, he has said he's been reported to have said that the Russian FSB have been tasked with killing Yevgeny Prigozhin following the rebellion, mutiny, whatever it was, last weekend. He was speaking to an American journalist called Howard Altman, and that that interview was reported in Interfax Ukraine. General Badanov said, We know that the task of killing Prigozhin was entrusted to the FSB. Will they be successful in this? Time will show. One way or another, all potential assassination attempts will not be quick. They will need some time to develop suitable approaches and reach the stage when they'll be ready for a large-scale operation. But I would like to emphasise that this is an, a, a big open question. Will they be able to do it? Will they dare to carry out this order? 
Um, now, he also said that his intelligence staff, they're not expecting Wagner to uh, appear in Ukraine as a separate entity doing its own operations following the actions of last weekend. I mean, there is some distance now between what we saw and room for a bit more analysis and what will happen to Brigosian, what will happen to Wagner. It was always a mugs game trying to second guess what the Kremlinology and what's going on, but um, trying to take a best a best guess, a squad average, if you like. I think the the sensible commentariat are suggesting that Prigozhin acted the way he did because he wanted Shoigu and Gerasimov sacked and he thought he could effect change in the Russian MOD, either indirectly or by physically getting into Moscow and, and into the MOD. But even if he didn't want to topple Putin, and all the suggestions are that he... Well, he's saying he didn't, and it's just quite fanciful. Even if he got there with maybe 5,000 troops because they were being nibbled away on the route north up the M4. I mean, in a city of 20 million, that's you know, it's, that's nothing. So I don't think he wanted to topple Putin. But he should have known. He would know that, that he can't just have taken the MOD, either directly or Im- indirectly, and then expect the rest of the Russian system and Putin to go, oh, yeah, that's fine, right, let's crack on, slight adjustment of the seating plan, but but go on. I mean, that just not that just wouldn't work so so something happened last week those seven or eight hours between him being in rostov and those images of him sat down with the southern military district commanders and then it all ending something happened in there and we reckon that Prigozhin would have thought that some russian commanders would have come out in support of his move and they didn't there were also casualties on both sides so suddenly the stakes have been raised it's a lot more serious wagner guys those ones, you know, we didn't think they were, we thought they were not the convicts. They, these were the sort of the original, the core Wagner, if you like. So these are largely regular Russian military, mainly airborne forces, special forces as well. So, you know, professional soldiers, very small P, professional soldiers, but they might be up for a fight and they might be up for duffing up kids in Africa, but, you know, they don't necessarily want to go up against Mother Russia. So they might have started thinking, hang on, this is getting serious. We've shot down six aircraft. Yeah, it's all getting very serious. They probably decided they weren't up for the fight at that point. And I think as that mood started to change, Prigozhin probably thought that the deal that had been offered or the noises that were coming out about how this thing could be defused probably looked a lot more attractive. Now, for the FSB that Mr. Badanov is saying have now been tasked with killing Prigozhin, I mean, it's almost inconceivable that they didn't know that something was happening in Wagner, their disgruntlement over this idea that by July the first, all volunteer units had to sign up contracts with the Russian MOD. They knew that was unha- that they were unhappy about that. They should have seen that it was more than that. So either they're incompetent, or they didn't have that imagination to to look forward and see that those grumbles could develop into something much more serious. Or they didn't pass the the intelligence up if they even did think that Wagner was planning something. So. I think what we take away from that is that the Russian state in a crisis is quite dysfunctional and that any any future threats um, could be missed. As for Wagner, well, we think that they, you know, I don't know if they're going to go to, they're either going to go to Belarus with Prigozhin or be rolled into the Russian MOD in some capacity or retire. And there's probably members who will take all three of those. So Wagner, is, the rump Wagner is going to be much depleted from what it was it's probably not it's probably this action has probably had minimal impact on the front lines in ukraine but it's almost inconceivable 
that Wagner will now have any meaningful impact on the war. And uh, yeah, they're probably going to change their name, carry on doing the stuff in the gold mines in Central African Republic and elsewhere. But I think we've probably seen the last of them in any meaningful capacity on the front lines. Been going on enough there. So one final, one final update. Zaporizhia, in particular the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant, and sticking with Ukraine's military intelligence directorate, they're saying that Russia is slowly reducing the number of personnel there at the occupied plant, the occupied nuclear power station. They were speaking, oh, this is a report from Reuters. They're not saying why some people have left, but the, the numbers are reducing. And they are quoted as saying, so this is the, the Mr. Badanov's department, the military intelligence department, saying, according to the latest data, the occupation contingent is gradually leaving the territory of the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant. They said the first to leave were the three employees of Rosatom, that's Russia's state nuclear firm, who had been in charge of the activities there. And the Ukrainian employees who have signed contracts with Rosatom have been told to go as well. It's thought that they're leaving, they've been told to leave by July the 5th, and they've been directed down to occupy Crimea. So Ukrainian military intelligence have also said that the number of military patrols are gradually decreasing at the nuclear power plant and personnel who remained were instructed to blame Ukraine if anything goes wrong. That's according to Reuters. I've been speaking for long enough. I'm sure Francis has got some comments there about about Zaporizhia. But yeah, I'll take a little breath. Thank you very much, Dom Nichols, for all of that. Francis Durnley, can I go to you? Do you want to follow up with some of your thoughts on the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant? Yes, well, thanks, David. Just one reflection on that. I spoke yesterday about the Graham Blumenthal resolution in the US and taken in tandem with the news that Dom just reported, there is evidently an increased focus on the the plant following the destruction of the dam just over a fortnight ago. On Thursday, Ukraine conducted exercises of what they would do if there were some kind of nuclear incident with medical professionals conducting exercises on patients, quite striking images. Unfortunately, if there is a particular focus on Zaporizhia in Ukraine and perhaps in the US, I have not sensed a similar sense of purpose here in Europe. It hasn't been as prominently discussed at a high level, as far as I can tell. So perhaps if listeners have heard their respective leaders talking about it, they can let us know, because it doesn't seem to be at the foremost of the agenda, as I say. But in other political news, we are hearing that Britain has called for NATO to remove a significant hurdle to Ukraine's membership of the military alliance. So Ben Wallace, of course, British Defence Secretary, said our allies should consider not putting Kyiv through the membership action plan before being allowed to join. This is the normal process in which countries have to go through in order to become members of NATO. He was quoted saying alongside his Canadian counterpart last night, I think we should absolutely look at skipping the membership action plan. But of course, we have to put some realism in this space that there are 31 members of NATO now and we all have to move together. Now, just a little bit of context on this. The process is designed to create a timeline to offer prospective members assessments on whether they can meet the quite high political, economic and military criteria for NATO membership. And removing any hurdle could significantly speed up the process and move countries straight to the ratification stage. That is what Ukraine wants. They think, and with some accuracy, I'm sure, that this would make it very clear to Russia that they are 
essentially have no chance of winning back Ukraine around if it joins NATO or is clearly on the path to NATO membership. And thereby, this would basically just deter Russia from further military involvement there. But there is disparate of opinion within the alliance. So some countries, Britain, um, certain Eastern European countries have called for the process to be scrapped to enable Ukraine to join more quickly, whereas others like the US are said to oppose that, that they want there to be a clearer process in place and that they, the same hurdles need to be reached. And as I say, that contrasts sharply with Ukraine's view, who believes that only when Moscow can see there's no way back for them to control Ukraine, will they see the follow, folly in continuing to persecute this war? But uh, staying with Europe, Hungary has rejected the European Commission's plans to grant more money to Ukraine and is said to not be willing to contribute more money to finance the EU's increased debt service costs. That's according to the country's Prime Minister, Viktor Orban, speaking on state radio from the sidelines of an EU summit, described the request from the Commission that Hungary should contribute more money as ridiculous when Budapest has not received funds from the EU's recovery fund amid a rule of law dispute. Poland has also not received funds for reasons we've talked about in the past of these kind of internal legal disputes within the EU. Now, the EU will provide 50 billion euros in aid to Ukraine for 2024 to 2027, the bloc's president announced earlier this month. Meanwhile, the EU's 2021-27 shared budget has been depleted by the pandemic, of course, the war in Ukraine, the energy crisis and high inflation and interest rates that have doubled the debt service in costs. And this is all what's really leading to upset within Hungary and other countries who are about a little bit more nervous about the economic costs of all this. So Mr. Orban has said one thing is clear. We Hungarians will not give more money to Ukraine until they say where the previous around 70 billion euros worth of funds has gone. We find it utterly ridiculous and absurd that we should contribute more money to finance debt service costs of a loan from which we have still not received the funds that we are entitled to get. And he added that there was no chance that European member states should approve these financial plans and that a long fight would begin. Just to stress, this does come as no surprise. Hungary remains Putin's closest ally within the bloc. They've made similar objections this past year, as we've reported on. They usually use this kicking up a fuss as a means to get some sort of concession before they acquiesce to some area of the EU's demand. I'm not saying that will necessarily be the case this time. Mr Orban does seem to be putting his foot down rather, but there is a pattern. And so we shouldn't necessarily see this as definitive, I don't think. Now, lastly, I want to draw attention to some revealing remarks by Russia's Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov. He has called for the UN Security Council to be widened in order to allow for more representation of Asian, African and Latin American countries in order to break what he calls Western domination of the world. So he told a news briefing, a majority of the world does not want to live according to Western rules. And he added that the West, in particular the US, was trying to prevent Russia and China from rising as independent centres in a multipolar world. Now, call me a cynic, but I think that he isn't requesting this out of the goodness of his heart, but because he wants more Russian sympathising countries to be present on the council. That last bit about trying to prevent Russia and China from rising as independent centres is also quite interesting, I think, not only in its pivot to China, 
but also in its seeking trying to compare itself to that country. China's economy is 10 times larger, perhaps more than Russia's. And I don't think Russia can hardly can really be described as an independent centre any more as it was, say, in the 20th century after the Second World War. It's no longer the rival superpower of the age, but it clearly still thinks of itself as that. And as I say, the rhetoric here is extremely revealing when we're talking about a country that has been humiliated in many ways in Ukraine when it saw itself previously as that as one of the great military powers of the world. But we are fighting here a cultural propensity to think itself as a great power. And that will take, I think, a long time to shake off. But that's where we are with the leading political stories, David. Thank you very much, Dom and Francis. Uh, Genevieve, thank you so much for joining. Can I come to you? It's been quite a busy day on the Ukraine Live blog today. Can we start with some of the recent visits to Kiev? Who's been to Kiev? Who have they met and what are they doing? Hi, David. Yes, I thought that I would start with a couple of notable visits to Kiev over the last 24 hours or so. Firstly, Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky has met with environmental activist Greta Thunberg and prominent European figures who are forming a working group to examine ecological damage from the Russian invasion and is also working to formulate mechanisms to hold Moscow accountable for this damage. The group met in Kiev on Thursday and included Greta Thunberg as well as former Swedish Deputy Prime Minister Margot Wallström, European Parliament Vice President Heidi Hatala and former Irish President Mary Robinson. Now, while there, Greta Thunberg said Russian forces, and I quote, are deliberately targeting the environment and people's livelihoods and homes and therefore are also destroying lives because this is, after all, a matter of people. She spoke in particular about the Nova Kakovka dam collapse earlier this month and described it as ecocide. She said, I do not think that the world reaction to this ecocide was enough. She added, we have to talk louder about it. We have to raise awareness about what is going on. This is according to a Ukrainian translation of her comments. 30% of Ukraine's territory is contaminated with explosive objects and 2.4 million hectares of forests are damaged. According to Andrew Kostin, the prosecutor general of Ukraine, who tweeted this and to mark the convening of the group in Kiev, he said on Twitter that the environment should no longer be the silent victim of war and added that Ukraine was the first state to prosecute environmental war crimes and ecocide on a massive scale. Now, also in Kiev over the last day or so is Mike Pence, the former US vice president, made a surprise visit to Ukraine yesterday and also met with Volodymyr Zelensky. He also toured some of the country. Mr. Pence, who is running for the Republican nomination in the 2024 presidential election, is the first Republican presidential candidate to meet Mr. Zelensky during the campaign. And this is particularly notable because of the divide amongst Republicans over financing of the Ukraine war. Mr. Pence said, freedom is winning in Ukraine. And now more than ever, we need to keep faith with the courageous fighters here in Ukraine who are standing for freedom and pushing back on Russian aggression. NBC News reported that according to an advisor, Mr. Pence spent about 12 hours in Ukraine with stops in Mushin, Bucha and Irpin. And he also received several briefings, including one from Ukrainian officials on the country's current security situation and one on allegations of human rights violations by Russians accused of abducting Ukrainian children. 
And in a clip from an interview on CNN in Ukraine, which Mr. Pence shared on Twitter yesterday, he said that he strongly supported American involvement in Ukraine, but criticised the Biden administration for being slow in providing military support. And he wrote on Twitter alongside the clip, We are the most powerful nation on earth, we have the most powerful military on earth, and we ought to be providing them with what they need to win. Uh, meanwhile, I suppose as a, a comparison, fellow Republican candidate Donald Trump said that Vladimir Putin had been somewhat weakened by the Wagner Group's aborted mutiny last weekend, but said that now is the time for the US to try and broker a negotiated peace settlement between Russia and Ukraine. He told Reuters in a telephone interview, I want people to stop dying over this ridiculous war. He went on to say, I think the biggest thing that the US should be doing right now is making peace, getting Russia and Ukraine together and making peace. You can do it. This is the time to do it, to get the two parties together to force peace. Staying within US-Ukraine news, the Biden administration is strongly considering approving the transfer of cluster munition warheads to Ukraine, several sources have told CNN. The officials told the outlet that a final decision is expected from the White House soon on the issue. And if the transfer is approved, then the warheads could be included in a new military aid package to Ukraine as soon as next month. The US has been hesitant to provide these because of the potential risk to civilians and an international treaty banning the use of cluster munitions. But... Changing battlefield conditions in Ukraine over the last fortnight have prompted US officials to seriously consider supplying cluster munitions to the country, according to these officials who have spoken to CNN. Kiev has been asking for cluster munitions that are compatible with HIMARS precision rocket launchers, and the US has stockpiled cluster munitions and has been phasing them out since 2016. Thanks, Genevieve. Could we just, I mean, you mentioned then Donald Trump's intervention calling for peace in Ukraine. There there are quite a few other initiatives going on as well. We've had an update from the Vatican and from Pope Francis. What has he been saying about his view to end the war in Ukraine? Yes, so... Pope Francis said today that there was no apparent end in sight to the war in Ukraine, as you say, as his peace envoy wrapped up three days of talks in Moscow. The pontiff told a religious delegation from the Patriarch of Constantinople, the tragic reality of this war that seems to have no end demands of everyone a common creative effort to imagine and forge paths of peace. And later on, the Vatican said in a statement um, that Papal Envoy Italian Cardinal Matteo Zuppi had finished his consultations in Moscow, where he met Yuri Ushakov, advisor to Vladimir Putin and the head of the Russian Orthodox Church, Patriarch Kirill. And this statement said the visit was aimed at identifying humanitarian initiatives which could open roads to peace. And it added that further steps would be taken, but gave no details. Thanks, Genevieve. Just finally, we've got this story in on our live blog. It comes from the Washington Post. Ukrainian General Valery Zeluzhny gave an interview to the Washington Post talking a little bit about the counteroffensive and his thoughts on it. It was, I thought, quite revealing. What did he say? Yes. So in this very in-depth interview with the Washington Post, General Valery Zaluzhny said, and I quote, it pisses him off when he hears that the counteroffensive has started slower than expected. As he said, every metre is given by blood. The head of Ukraine's armed forces expressed his frustration at the view, which is publicly expressed in the West and also has been expressed by um, Ukrainian President Zelensky, although he was not referring to the president. Um, He said... This is not a show. It's not a show the whole world is watching and betting on or anything. Every day, every metre is given by blood. And he added that 
and I quote, without being fully supplied, these plans are not feasible at all. And he renewed calls in the interview for more military support. He added, though, but they are being carried out. Yes, maybe not as fast as the participants in the show, the observers would like, but that is their problem. Well, thank you very much, Genevieve. And I would say to everybody listening, do follow the live blog on the Telegraph website, Man by Genevieve. Today, it's got all the latest updates, all the latest news, and it helps you keep in touch with what's happening in Ukraine. So thank you very much, Genevieve Hall-Allen. Um, any reaction to the interview from Valery Zaluzhny, Dom or Francis, before we move on? Yeah, I'd just say that I thought the comments he made were absolutely appropriate about the speed of advance of the counteroffensive. And in particular, I thought his comments about air cover were really telling. He's saying that all the doctrine, NATO doctrine says that you don't you don't try and do anything like this without your nice bubble of air cover giving you that well some assurance that you can you can affect things on the other side from from the air and protect yourself. And that's what we've been expecting Ukraine to do. They've not got a huge air bubble they don't have local air superiority they don't have that that what we consider to be such a basic building block i mean you try and you, you if you introduce to any exercise here right guys now for the next 48 hours you're gonna you're not gonna have any air cover i mean just watch the ripple around the command staffs at that point not only because they think well hang on we're always going to have some kind of air power and we'd mass it so that for a small amount of time we'd have local air superiority or if you got that thought out of their heads and said, no, 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 go, seriously, go without without air power. How are you going to plan that? I mean, they'd be looking left and right and thinking, bloody hell, yeah, how do we do it? It's just such a fundamental now to NATO doctrine that giving or expecting Ukraine to do one of the hardest tasks straight away, as in an offensive action through a prepared defensive belt without air power. It's just a, I mean, it's going from a standing start to sprinting. And as a man who snapped both hamstrings, Two weeks ago at the dad's 60-metre dash at the school race. I know what damage that can do. So I think, yeah, read the article in the Washington Post. I thought it was very telling. But the air power especially, I think that that point needs underlining. Thanks very much, Dom. Uh, Francis, can I come to you? You've been looking into a story coming out of Ukraine of this is the story that Ukrainian prosecutors have charged a Russian policeman and two suspected collaborators with war crimes to do with the alleged deportation of orphans from the formerly occupied city of Kherson. You've been looking at this story, Francis. Can you tell us about it? Well, thanks, David. Regular listeners will know I try to provide updates on the issue of Ukraine's stolen children whenever there are developments. And there have been a few recently. As you say, the first is the story today that Ukrainian prosecutors have charged a Russian politician and two suspected collaborators with war crimes over the alleged deportation of dozens of orphans from the formerly occupied city of Herzon. The three are the first suspects to be charged by Ukraine, which says more than 19,000 children, of course, have been illegally transferred to Russia or Russian-held territory. My own view is that that's an underestimate, given that we've now been citing that figure for several months. And so because Russia has not changed its policy, I expect the real figure is unfortunately higher than that. But that's the official figure we still have, and that's what we're using. Prosecution documents seen by Reuters allege that 48 orphans were taken from the Herzon Regional Children's Home in September and October and relocated to Moscow and Russian-occupied Crimea. The current whereabouts of the orphans, their ages ranging from one to four years old, is uncertain, prosecutors have said. 
The charges follow a wider investigation carried out in cooperation with the Hague-based International Criminal Court, the chief prosecutor of which visited the Hezon Children's Home. Now, a Kremlin again has dismissed allegations that Russia has violated children's rights in Ukraine and has said that on the contrary, its armed forces are rescuing children from conflict zones. Now, I'll return to that later. But first of all, I I think given that we've spoken so much about Belarus this week, I did want to draw attention to the fact that back in May, Poland's permanent representative to the EU Uh, told ambassadors of the other 26 EU countries about their perception that Belarus has also been involved in illegal deportations of Ukrainian children. And indeed, they called for the imposition of EU sanctions on Lukashenko's regime for those actions. So at this meeting, they presented information contained in a letter received from a representative of the Belarusian interim government created by opposition activists. And in that letter... They claim to show that 2,000 children, mostly from the occupied territories of Ukraine, were deported to holiday camps and sanatoriums in Belarus. One of the institutions is the Dubrava Camp, which belongs to a state-owned company. Uh, There's also charities that are believed to have been involved in this activity. So when we're talking about this, this is also something that Belarus may be implicated in as well. Though as far as I can tell, that has not been investigated as, as in detail as the Russian Uh, engagements on this. Now, Vice News have published another very interesting investigative video. Uh, Indeed, it came out yesterday titled Stealing Ukraine's Children Inside Russia's Camps. They interview in that a teacher who describes the children being taken away by Russia. Then they feature a mother looking for her 12-year-old son who'd been missing for 18 months. They managed to find him in their investigation at a school in Russia, seeking to instill propaganda uh, in him and on his fellow students. It's not subtle. Uh, They've got Russian flags, pictures of Putin on the walls, singing Russian songs. She then goes to collect him and their reporters actually go to some of the camps where they're told by government officials and teachers there that the children want to become Russian citizens, uh, albeit under the guise of rehabilitation. They also interview children who got away from these schools and they describe how they miss their parents, how their experiences were nothing like the footage shown to the camera crews of happy children playing games. They describe being forced to sleep on concrete floors, being made to sing the Russian national anthem, eating horrific food from tinned cans, some of which was rotten, and forced to wear Russian flags and symbols. One even describes being forced to use how a bulletproof vest. It's unfortunately what we've been hearing for some time now, but to see it and to see some of these places does make it as, uh, well, even more shocking. Just a reminder, too, that kidnapped children aren't, of course, the only victims in this war. UNICEF estimates that perhaps as many as 82% of Ukrainian children are living in poverty as a consequence of this war. More than half of the 7.5 million child population have been displaced, 2 million in other countries, many of them, of course, separated from family and friends, many living on handouts in temporary accommodation. 
more than 1.5 children are at risk of mental health issues with long-term implications. And that's in addition to the more than 1,500 under-18s that have been killed or injured since the full-scale invasion. This will be a generational battle to solve. But at least we are talking about it now and in a way that feels informed. I remember when our coverage first began, it was barely on people's radar. There was only speculation. Now we've had the arrest warrant issued for Putin and his children's commissioner and the numerous reports documenting this and exactly who is responsible and the processes that have enabled it. Yet it doesn't appear that there has been any shift in how Russia have approached the issue of children. If anything, they are doubling down, claiming that these children were taken at their parents' request, something we know definitively is factually inaccurate. Now, to stress, these are not just the unfortunate and inevitable consequences of war. These are defined as war crimes. When children are taken like this, it breaks the rules of the Geneva Convention that children are not allowed to be removed from host countries. Any claim otherwise is simply bogus. So we shouldn't allow ourselves to be fooled by propaganda on this and should continue to keep this issue of children at the very forefront of our minds because it is truly shocking to see it. And as I say, I recommend that listeners watch this investigative piece by Vice News because when you see how it operates, it brings it all home, frankly. Thank you very much, Francis Sterney, for that report there. Can I ask you both then just for your final thoughts going into the weekend? What will you be looking at and thinking of ahead of this weekend? Sure, I'll go first then. So I just think with a bit of reflection, if Prigozhin's rash dash last Saturday has invited speculation about how power works in Russia and who the unusual suspects jockeying for position behind him might be, I would suggest... And recommend that uh, you all take a look at this week's Defence In-Depth video. I'm not on it. I'm not trying to plug it for me, (laughs) of course. My ego is not that big. It is. It is that big. We have guest presenter Aliona Elivko. Aliona, thanks so much for doing it. She looks at some of the names we should familiarise ourselves with, the power brokers around and behind Putin. She floats the intriguing idea that we've not seen the last of Mr Prigozhin. And as she says, perhaps the greatest trick that Prigozhin ever pulled was convincing the world that he'd gone to Belarus. Thank you very much, Dom. Francis Sternley. Thanks. Yes, I also highly recommend that video by Aliona. It's very interesting going into a little bit more detail about some of these individuals that we've been talking about and others that may be less familiar to listeners. Whilst we're on the subject of Bogosian, just one very small thought from me, which is that, yes, I can accept the analysis that Don was talking about there of people who think, well, it may not have been Bogosian's primary aim to overthrow Putin, but rather to precipitate change within the state apparatus, particularly the defence state apparatus, and see ministers like Shoigu gone and perhaps even Prigozhin in a more powerful position in controlling the armed forces. I can accept that. But anyone must know that if they march on Moscow with thousands of soldiers and are shooting down planes, that there is a chance you're going to lead to the implosion of a regime. And indeed, that you are, if particularly if you're expecting people to come out and support you, which Prigozhin did, that, that you might have that impact. I don't expect that Prigozhin would have turned around if Putin had been arrested or something by officials in Moscow, that he would have then said, oh, no, you have to let him go. We're keeping Putin in power. Of course we are. If the crown were offered to him, he is the kind of man who would have accepted it. He's got an enormous ego. That much is clear. And indeed, I think 
think there's a strong case to think that he's been fantasizing about this kind of event for a very long time indeed, if you look to the things that he's written and said in the past. So I don't, I'm not willing to quite concede yet that he wouldn't have taken power if it were offered to him, that it was never his intention. I believe he must have been thinking about that as being something conceivable. But he may well have also been thinking it was not the most likely outcome, but indeed the more likely outcome was that it would force the military apparatus to change and indeed him and Wagner to become more influential within the state. But as we've seen, even that was perhaps very naive. I don't think he's the, the sharpest tool in the shed. Thank you, Dom, Genevieve and Francis. At the end of my time in Ukraine last week, I was invited to look around the Patron Pet Centre in Kyiv. The Patron Pet Centre provides help for homeless pets, housing them and finding them new families. After the destruction of the Hachovka Dam, the number of animals abandoned and affected was in the thousands. This is just one centre working to help them. Here's the story. Well, it's very nice to meet you. Would you introduce yourself and just tell us a bit about the place where we are? My name is Irina Pitanchuk. I am volunteer in Patron Center. This space is more like a rehabilitation center for dogs and cats. We not represent ourselves like a shelter because the main idea is for adapting animals, for making them healthy and psychological and physical and find for them real family. You said that you've opened early. You were meant to open a bit later in the year. What happened? Why are you open now? We right now opened because 6th of June happens a tragedy in Kherson region and our owners decided that they wanted to extremely fast opening our doors and helping volunteers who bring animals from Kherson region to our centre and to help them for adopt animals. So the animals we can hear, I think in the next room, are they all from Kherson? Yes, all of them are from Kherson. In future, all of these cages will be closed with some protection. So it's like a private apartment block will be for every each animal. And uh, in future, it will be two floors because right now we have just one floor and we, in a very fast way, building a few other cages like which are right now opened, but they will be renovated in soon time. So we're right now looking for money for a renovation. So can you talk a little bit about the stories of some of the animals that you've saved from Hassan? Do you know them by name? Like- no, most of these stories of animals, we didn't know who were their owners and what their names. We just know for a few animals their names, that one, which owners sold them on the videos, what we're making from our center, and they find exactly the animals who they lost in the tragedies. And we have some animals, like one dog whose owner saw her in video, but but he called us and told that he haven't got right now option to back her. And he asked it to us to find for her a new family, exactly what we've done a few days ago. So is the idea here that these animals aren't here very long? They're here to be treated, make sure they're healthy, and then immediately you're trying to find new places? Uh, we not rush to find yeah. new families. So for us, it's the main idea that uh, the animal was coming down, that we check if it's not any problems with uh, health, with the bodies, and just after that we will be making a vaccination, and just after that we will be looking for families. You can see our apartments for animals. All of them are with sun protection. They have system of air condition. They have a heating floor. So in the summertime, it's very fresh there. 
and in winter time open on a heating system so it will be a warm floor and it will be not cold so all of these animals you can see like they're chilling and resting even if other dogs from the other part which are not still built they make noise for all of that animals it's so calm and so chill because they didn't hear all of these noises just very quickly I'm just going to describe where we are we're in a giant warehouse and there are several sort of corridors of wooden cabins with glass doors behind which each animal so in, in this apartment there's a small a small sort of ginger dog that's asleep on the floor and there's i would say maybe how many i mean how many animals are in here i'm guessing 100 maybe 100 more than that at this moment like right now close to 80 because we already find like some new families mm-hmm. but yesterday we got sev- seven more dogs <laughs> so we all the time like in like this movement there's two kittens snuggling not, with not, them not two, two uh, there's three. It's, it's oh, there's three it's four, four. of them like yes puppies <laughs> okay that's really cute there's what one two three four uh, we had, three puppies uh, at least five puppies and mommy here uh, this is doggy from Kherson region but this moment we have 18 puppies in our center these uh, puppies we got 18 of June they're from Kherson region from uh, other volunteers uh, who saved them from the drone areas We will be looking for new families for them. Let's walk to the end of the warehouse then. Could you tell us a little bit about... This is actually really hard to concentrate. The questions are so cute. Hello. Could you tell us a little bit about how these these pets have been rescued? Is is this an... Oh, hello. (laughs) Guys, guys, we're recording. You you see what's going on uh, when it's like typical shelter. When uh, every people are passing uh, these gauges, the old animals react on that and start bowling and wake up other animals. And this is make just like more more big stress for animals. So, okay, stay quiet. So, um, in terms of how these animals were rescued... um, is there a pattern? Is it is it rescuers? Is it individuals, Ukrainians, going out the boats, finding them, bringing them to you? Is it? Do you, has your organisation done that? How, how does that happen? No, 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 no. Our organisation is just like platform mm-hmm. for other volunteers, which are getting like the animals from the drone areas to us, and we just like platform where they can leave animals and we will be care about them and look on their health and rehabilitate them and like looking for families. Gotcha. So, so, so uh, we haven't got our own volunteers who are going mm. to the drone areas. So pe- people bring them to you, people bring them to you and say, yes. here's a dog I rescued or here's yeah, a dog I saw exactly. or so on. Can you take it and see what happens? Okay. Yeah, exactly. Some of this is still in construction, so we're just treading quite carefully. Exactly. At this moment, you can see like this is our zoopsychologist. Uh, in the blue. In green a t-shirt and in blue it's our vets we have here for like from eight o'clock in the morning till to eight o'clock in the evening like 12 hours during the day we have two vets here and if someone needs uh, help they immediately doing this the same we have two zoopsychologists they work in with trauma psychologists traumas of animals and they try to protect animals and give them feelings that everything is fine and can again trust people because we shouldn't forget that all of the animals who are right now in our centers not just from drone areas they are from front line so all of these animals reacting on very loud sounds on very active movements if something uh, bumped very like loud they immediately scare it so these Lots of basically almost all of these animals in one way or another have been severely traumatized. Yeah, exactly. 
How long is there a sort of average time that they spend here before they get adopted, or does that really depend on? All depends on the animal because we're telling our new families that they should be ready mm. that animal could for forever, unfortunately, forget these traumas and they could for forever scare it loud sounds. So that's too loud. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> dogs and they react in everything. So the cage there was shaking. I think it woke up, it woke up very close to it. So in terms of who's, who is adopting them, is this just in, in, inside Ukraine or the foreign adoptions uh, as yes, well? Yes, right now it's Ukrainians who get information that we have animals and they come into us and um, some of them bring to us help, like buy food for dogs, masks. So when look, what do you find personally the most sort of rewarding aspects of this job? In case of like um, rewarding for me, I guess like the main is like when you see animals who from first day he just he's sitting in the corner of his cage and he didn't want even move of course of scary and after five days he come to you and lick your hands and put his head on your hands. I guess this moment was everything and when you uh, can walk with him outside of the like our center and play with him. Oh my God, I had like my, one of my favorite doggy. He came to us in very bad condition, in health, in um, uh, psychologist, health and physical. And he was close to 10 years old. So we, we thought that he will never find any family because he was too scary. But after I worked with him six, seven days, something like this, and he started to trust me, he started to work with me in lectures, and after 10 days, he go to his new family, and right now uh, we are in touch with his uh, new mom, <laughs> because he right now is sleeping in the bed, in bedroom with her owners, and for me, I guess, like, it's the most perfect moment, of, like, all of this hard work uh, was. Because, like, in normal life, I'm, like, far from, uh, like, all of these shelters, other... Um, what do you do in normal life? I'm an actress, and I'm a film director. <laughs> but, like, last two weeks, I'm completely living here. Uh, and I guess, like, at this moment, it's more important than, like, all of this celebrity life and all of these movies, <laughs> etc., etc. Because it's real life, and, uh, like, right now, all of these people who you can see here, uh, we are volunteers. We are um, just for main idea to make this animal's life better. We are here. Did you know them before you came to volunteer? Like, have you brought your friends, or is it is it just completely random it's people? It's like randomly people who come here at first day after tragedy. They bring here some stuff for helping uh, uh, center. And we started doing like, everything, what ev everyone could. Like someone organized something. Is here come to uh, those psychologists and okay, we know what to do. We're like different animals. So every, everyone find immediately their like uh, their part of work, w what they can do. Especially right now here, we call each other like family because after these two weeks, when we here for twelve, sometimes even sixteen hours <laughs> during the day. Wow, it's really like uh, we are from eight o'clock in the morning till two. Uh, minimum eight at the evening some sometimes at 11 12 o'clock like uh, we, we went from here so it's not just like animal who live in somewhere close to you mm. it's like really your child and we want like in integrate this idea to ukrainians and to all the world that really animals it's our kids and everything what we share with them they give back to us in 1000 percent more by their love to us so, and even the animals, it's very stressful. You can really 
just uh, we sharing with them love to them, you can change this animal and you can bring them uh, the view how life could be and how perfect it can it can be. So I I really want that all the world and not just in Ukraine and all the world that people start to in other way looking on animals to be like real really big big family. So quite a moment here. We've just come out of the warehouse with the animals compartments, and there's a dog on a lead, uh, being in the process of being adopted, off to off to join his new family. Um, so who, who's who's this? Where is he going? Do we know much? Uh, she will be living in Kiev. Uh, he will be living in a flat, like a sofa puppy. <laughs> he looks very happy. Yeah, of course. And he's like how I understand, like this is his, uh, and he will be have friend. Yeah, there's a little baby yeah, in it. Yeah. Oh. So the puppy's being adopted. The new owner is just stroking his neck, calming him down. And uh, she's got, I think, a newborn child in Pushcha there. And that's it. He's now he's now got a new home. Yes, here right now, like they signed contract, and he will be going to his new family. And after a few days, our call center will be called new families and will be asked for sure how the animals adapting in new family. And if they will be need some any help, uh, we will be like helping or co- like make some proposition how they make a like, life of uh, the puppy better. And like we always ask new families to send us videos and photos from new homes that we will be see that everything is good and puppy is happy because for us it's the main idea because we so many power, so many energy put in right now to rehabilitate these dogs and cats. So for us it's so important that like these kids go, go into really good families. Thank you very much. Thank you. Ukraine The Latest is an original podcast from The Telegraph. To stay on top of all of our Ukraine news, analysis and dispatches from the ground, subscribe to The Telegraph. You can get your first three months for just £1 at www.telegraph.co.uk forward slash Ukraine The Latest. Or sign up to Dispatches, our Ukraine newsletter, which brings stories from our award-winning foreign correspondents straight to your inbox. We also have a Ukraine live blog on our website, where you can follow updates as they come in throughout the day including insights from regular contributors to this podcast. You can listen to this conversation live at 1pm London time each weekday on Twitter Spaces. Follow The Telegraph on Twitter so that you don't miss it. To our listeners on YouTube, please note that due to issues beyond our control, there is sometimes a delay between broadcast and upload. If you want to hear Ukraine The Latest as soon as it is released, do refer to podcast apps. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider following Ukraine The Latest on your preferred podcast app and... If you have a moment, leave a review, as it helps others find the show. You can also get in touch directly to ask questions or give comments by emailing ukrainepod at telegraph.co.uk. We do read every message. As ever, we are especially interested to hear where you are listening from around the world. Ukraine The Latest was produced by Rachel Porter and Giles Gear, and the executive producers are David Knowles and Louisa Wells. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. 
Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.